everyone. On this week's episode of Food Talk with Danny Nierberg, I talked to Margaret Ziegler, the executive director of Global Harvest Initiative. We talk about the companies she works with, including DuPont and Monsanto, why it's important to have dialogue even when we disagree, and the organization's Global Agricultural Productivity Report. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierberg. Our guest today is Margaret Ziegler, the executive director of the Global Harvest Initiative. The GHI is a private sector partnership addressing global hunger by promoting policies and practices to increase productivity. It was started in 2009 as a partnership among different companies, which today includes DuPont, Alanco, Animal Health, Farmland Partners Incorporated, John Deere, Monsanto, The Mosaic Company, and Smithfield Foods. Uh, Before GHI, Margaret spent 18 years at the Congressional Hunger Center, and she serves on the Scientific Advisory Council of the United States Foundation for Food and Agricultural Research. Agriculture Research. I also know that Margaret likes to salsa dance because I got to spend some time with her in Colombia last year at, at, a, at a conference. And I also appreciate uh, the, the following about Margaret. She and I don't agree on everything, but she's very respectful and very kind. And, and um, she and I might have different ideas about how to get to a more sustainable food system, but she does want a more sustainable food system to be in place. And I have just learned a lot from her, uh, from knowing of her and knowing her for over the years. So Margaret, that was a really short bio, but I'm really pleased you're here. Do you want to add anything? Well, I am so glad that I've gotten to know you and learned a lot more about Food Tank's work over the years. Um, I think what you guys are doing is really powerful. And you guys are definitely helping to shape the the food systems and agriculture systems that we all are part of. And I think we actually, all of us have a lot more in common than we probably know, because maybe a lot of times we don't just get to talk and know each other. Absolutely. And it was great in Colombia to spend more time together. And right now I'm drinking a cup of really good Colombian coffee. So <laughs> of course you are. That's awesome. Um, again, thank you for being here. The, the way I start off the podcast, no matter uh, who I'm talking to, if it's, you know, Jim Perdue or Karen Washington, I like to ask them their favorite food memory. Do you have one you'd like to share? You've traveled all over the world. Is there a particular meal or flavor that just, you know, resonates with you? Gosh, yeah, I, I um, have spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, as well as Latin America, and, and a bit in Africa. But I just have a wonderful memories of spending time um, in Cambodia and Thailand. Um, at that time, I was um, doing some work related to the programs I used to work on at the Congressional Hunger Center. Um, these were these were fellowship programs named after Mickey Leland. And we had these really amazing Mickey Leland fellows who still are actually working all over the world in ag and food security. And um, just had an amazing experience in Thailand with my first really authentic Thai Thai meal and um, visiting the fellows. And it was even hotter and more spicy than I've ever had in the States. So it was just a wonderful, luscious memory. It was street food, which, you know, we have a lot of that now in the States, more and more with food trucks. But, um, oh, my gosh that street food in Thailand was amazing and fresh and, and just so the, the rich spices. I loved it. That's great. That's a great memory to share. 
So I, I know you just returned from a really exciting week in, in all places, Des Moines, Iowa, where every year um, <laughs> the World Food Prize uh, meetings and, and event occurs. And uh, I know you released uh, the GHI's Global Agricultural Productivity Productivity Report or GAP report there. And I, I'm interested in if you can talk a little bit about sort of the history of that report um, and, and why it's published, and then some of the main findings. So kind of a big question. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so the World Food Prize, first of all, um, it, it's an interesting space. As some of your listeners know, it's out in Des Moines, Iowa. It's held every year um, uh, during the week of World Food Day. And it's meant to honor people who have worked really hard to increase either the availability or the nutritional content uh, or the sustainability of food. And um, this year, it was really great because there was a huge focus on nutrition. And um, that's a great thing I've seen about the World Food Prize through the years. It's It still includes scientists, of course, um, but increasingly, I think it's been focusing more and more on different aspects of food security. Yeah, that's been exciting as, um, to see. Nutritional quality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this year it was, um, the honorees were from GAIN, and um, Lawrence Haddad and and David Nabarro, um, who is, they are both amazing leaders for nutrition. So uh, it was very exciting to be there. And I, I saw a real, a real focus on nutrition as well as sustainability. So that's cool. Um, and our report, we, we release it every year. This is our ninth GAP report. And it came about because... Um, uh, about when we were created back in 2008, 2009, there had been a big food price crisis. Mm-hmm. As most of your listeners know, you know, this, this threw, uh, um, millions of people into poverty. Food prices spiked overnight and the world mobilized to try to, you know, address this. And so, um, our founders at the time created the gap report to really try to say, you know, here's a, here's a private sector perspective on food security nutrition and agriculture. And so each year, the gap report, uh, we take a, a, a dive into, you know, what are some of the policies that we think need to be improved to uh, help with nutrition or help with food availability or sustainability. So we have a different theme every year in the mm-hmm. gap report. This year, our report really took, um, and I think a, a lot of this is actually kudos to you guys at Food Tank, and other groups who are are really trying to raise consumer mm-hmm. concerns, we took a um, pretty strong look at what are the consumer impacts on the global food and agriculture system. And uh, I hope folks get a chance to go into our digital report. We launched a big digital report this year, and it, it really looks at all the consumer concerns mm-hmm. about food and agriculture, mm-hmm. but also provides solutions. So our GAP report had a big focus on you know, what can we do to improve the lives of producers, uh, improve the environment, and also um, help consumer concerns, particularly things like nutritional quality. Right. But one of the things that I appreciated about the report this year is that you did have this focus on consumers and how they expect more from their food than previous generations. So you have mm-hmm. millennial and even younger consumers who, who want to know the story. And in many ways, I feel like companies are responding to this, both, both small and large. But in some mm-hmm. ways, I feel like, you know, a lot of smaller and medium-sized companies are able to pivot in, in a lot of ways that the bigger 
companies can't and, and, you know, address those concerns about nutrition or address those concerns about social justice. Do you, do you feel that to be true or do you think big companies can also do that? I agree in a sense that I think that um, certainly smaller and medium-sized companies that are startups are are responding um, because they it's their business model to really try to connect more with different audiences. And I think they're also started by sometimes people who are very creative and very connected mm. to consumers. But I do see also, again, this is another trend I've seen over the last 25 years I've been working in this space – I do see that the large companies are responding more and more. Mm. And in some ways, they have a lot of resources by which once they do start to pivot, they can really make a huge difference. Right. Um, and that's so that's exciting, too. And and the thing to remember, I, I came out of actually a hunger and um, humanitarian emergency mm-hmm. background. Mm-hmm. And so coming to this space um, at the Global Harvest Initiative was a little bit different for me. And I have to say, I am... I'm so lucky to work with these companies because particularly the folks I work with are in the sustainability space for Uh these companies and they are really progressive and forward thinking and they are real industry leaders. And so they also acknowledge that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, um, but they're also really willing to tackle and to partner and they're way more open than I've ever seen before. That, so it's a cool time. Yeah, that's good to hear. I mean, that was going to be one of my questions. Like, how do you handle that criticism? And it sounds like you figured it out because you're coming from a background that's very different than theirs. But, you know, I, I think some of our listeners who come from, you know, the sustainable ag sector might think that, gosh, you know, these companies must influence what's in this report and, and influence, you know, Margaret's sort of take on these things. But, you know, from what I know of you, you're, you're, kind of a, a badass. You're not going to let any company <laughs> tell you what to, to think. But how, how do you handle that that criticism? Well, you know, I do think that some crit- criticisms, you know, are a result of there, there have been things done in the past that maybe weren't the wisest courses. Mm-hmm. And I think that many of these companies do acknowledge that. And so I think the starting point is to say, hey, you know, we were doing things a certain way in our business model for years. We weren't paying attention to consumers right. or the environment. And we acknowledge now that we really um, want to be part of the solution. And I've I've visited all of these companies at their headquarters. I've visited their research labs. I've seen their partnerships with whether they're NGOs or whether they are international research mm-hmm. institutions or universities. And I can see a real sea change. And I think the thing I, I found working with a lot of these folks is many of these folks in these companies actually have either done Peace Corps themselves or mm-hmm. they've been farmers or mm-hmm. their parents were farmers. You know, they're coming from an ag background. So, you know, I think that they are being more responsive than I've ever seen. And they are trying to provide actually um, models where they, if they're making a claim for sustainability, they're also getting those things checked by third parties. So... You know, I think that they are making really great effort. So yeah. you, you want to prod them where you can, and then you want to say, hey, you, you did some good things here. Keep it up. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting to see this kind of evolution. 
I, I want to get back to the report a little bit. And, you know, it, it kind of paints not a, a very rosy picture for agricultural productivity um, and mm-hmm. saying that, you know, we're, we're, it's not growing fast enough to sustainably feed the world in 2050. Can you talk more about those findings and, and what you mean by productivity? Yeah. And I we always have to be really careful when we start talking about productivity because mm-hmm. I know for me, even coming into this space, I wasn't fully aware of um, what it meant. And when we talk about productivity in the gap report, what we're really talking about is not just production. So people sometimes hear, oh, they just want to produce more. But it's not about that at all. Um, productivity is in agricultural economics lingo. Um, it, it's when you take a ratio measure of everything you're producing, so your outputs, and you compare that with all the inputs that were required to produce that food or that agriculture product. And what we do in the GAP report is we try to make it really clear that we're talking about something called efficiency or innovation adoption. Mm-hmm. It's not just production. And we actually use measurement and data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They've been tracking this on a global and a regional and a country level basis for decades. So we use data from USDA and we track year over year how we're doing globally, regionally, and at the country level with respect to really getting a handle on all those resources that are used to produce food and agriculture. So, you know, productivity tells us, you know, are people adopting best practices? Are farmers and ranchers more sustainably using their land? Are they sustainably using or at least efficiently using fertilizer, seeds, livestock, machinery, and labor hours. So it's it's not a perfect measure, but it does start to get at, you know, are we able to produce by getting a handle on the inputs mm-hmm. and reducing land expansion and reducing fertilizer use or, or labor? Or actually, in the GAP report, what we do is we show how last year and this year, we give an example with livestock. The idea is to try to produce more available food, such as dairy or eggs or or uh, meat, from fewer animals, because that will have a trickle-down effect on the amount of um, greenhouse gases that are released. So uh, it's about productivity, it's about sustainability, it's about uh, intensification, but it's also about getting a handle on the resource use. Does the report, and, and I ask this because I know it's important to you, to, to look does it look at the role of, of, of women farmers and, and their role in all of this? Well, we do know that, <laughs> and this, is, this has been shown through many different um, studies, that when women have access to these best practices, uh, knowledge, and best, uh, let's say, better seeds or better, better genetic resources in livestock, they are able to produce so much more because they're they're responsible for agriculture in the in much of the developing world, and it doesn't particularly incorporate a gender focus into the the measures. But we know that a big part of the gap that we're seeing in productivity, particularly in the small the low income countries, is because precisely because the producers, the smallholders, are not getting access to the best technologies and the best training, and we know that m- most of those are women. So. Um, it indirectly measures that. When you look at our findings this year, you see a huge gap 
in the rate of productivity growth for the low-income countries. Mm. And we know that that's primarily because those countries, a lot of the women or the, the smallholder producers, are not getting access to the, the training and the best quality inputs that they need. Oh, one other thing that you know, I, I wanted to ask is, is, was there anything that shocked you in this year's report compared to, to last year's or, or previous years? Was there one thing that sort of stood out in terms of you know, surprising you? Yeah, well, you know, this is the fifth year in a row that the productivity trends are going in the wrong direction. So if there's one big takeaway, I would say that the productivity growth is really off this year and it continues to be off for the fifth straight year. Mm -hmm. And that's worrying. If it was, if we had been like off one year in the last five years or one or two years, but this is a trend for the last five years, it keeps declining. And that's, both at the global level, and it's also particularly bad for the low-income countries. And, and why do you and think so, that is? Well, I think that there's just a lack of focus in many of these countries on prioritizing agriculture as a sector. Still. And as, yeah, still. And, you know, there's standout countries where there is a focus. You know, you can look at Rwanda as an example where there is a focus on improving agriculture and improving innovation. But most of these countries are, they're just not prioritizing rural areas or agriculture. Mm-hmm. And the rural poverty and the rural, uh, this particularly smallholders are, are not, no one's paying attention. So it's going to be bad in the next 10 years. I think um, if, if this isn't turned around, um, you're going to just see the, the productivity continue to decline. And what that means is, you know, they're going to, their folks are going to be producing, but as a strategy, what they're going to end up doing is moving into more marginal lands or sure. opening up new lands for ag production that shouldn't be used instead of being able to produce more on existing land. So, you know, when you look at the gap report and you see in the low income country uh, charts that we've got online, what you really see is uh, these red bars <laughs> that are, are huge and those represent land expansion. Uh-huh. And that's what we're really concerned about is, is from a sustainability standpoint, land expansion is just the wrong direction to be going in. Uh, absolutely. Can you um, give the URL to the report so people as they're listening, if they can look it up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you if you do a Google of, you know, global agricultural productivity report, it should come up. But what you can do is just um, it's global agricultural productivity dot org. It's very long, but it's just, you know, you just type in global agricultural productivity and it'll pop up. And there's all kinds of great resources there. You can download um, charts and data. You can download the various chapters. Um, We have some, we have an executive summary as well. And there's uh, over 30 case studies online. Um, These are from not only our member companies, but they are also from... Uh, our consultative partners. And those are institutions like the Nature Conservancy, mm-hmm. universities, um, groups that work with smallholder farmers uh, and cooperatives like ACDI VOCA. Um, and, and we have case studies in there from FAO and EFAD, which are UN agencies that also work to improve agriculture and food security. 
We have a really nice story in there um, from one of our partners, Gain, um, talking about how um, students and young people in Bangladesh are becoming advocates for adolescent nutrition. Oh, that's great. Which is really a real challenge because um, about, you know, depending on the country, you've got um, adolescents who are particularly affected by malnutrition. And if you can't, you know, kind of address that, you've got an, another generation becoming either stunted or just not living up to their right. nutritional potential. Right. No, I, and I think, you know, by the way, GAIN is the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. We've mentioned that acronym a couple of times. No, I, I love the mm-hmm. youth component. I think um, that's more needed than ever. I, I do want to get back to the the policy side of this. So you, you talked about how in, in 2007, 2008, the, the food and, and financial crisis began and, and that sort of um, mobilized funders and, and governments to really care about agriculture. And then by, mm-hmm. by 2013, it seems, you know, five years ago, according to your report, that that sort of, you know, that has either declined or, or not uh, kept, you know, the me- momentum. How can we mm-hmm. convince policymakers that agriculture is important to their not only their national economies, but, you know, the, the personal and economic development of the people who live in those countries. Yeah, I, I um, it, it remains a challenge because it's agriculture is cyclical. So, you know, when we have this crisis, we also have a section about this on, on there, our online uh, gap report. It, it explains kind of some of the cyclical nature of agriculture production. So you have these booms and busts and, you know, like, we were talking about 2007 to 2008, there was a, a bust, you know, I mean, there was just, um, you know, the food demand was both increasing and, and there wasn't sufficient production. So you had this crisis. And then accordingly, people paid attention, they ramped up production, and sometimes they did it not, not in the best ways, you know, they expanded into new land, and they um, maybe didn't use the best methodologies, but they produced enough. So people's attention kind of came off. And um, what I think has happened now is, again, governments really need to think about, they need to make a long-term commitment to investing in public agricultural research mm-hmm. and development. Absolutely. And that's, that's, our, that's our number one policy priority. We have, we have five areas that we really focus on, and I can touch on those. But our number one is really to keep up the investments in public agricultural research, development, and extension. Because... Public investments provide the foundation for eventual products or eventual innovations that others can innovate Mm -hmm. on and develop and bring to market. But if you don't have a strong pipeline of good research for the public good, then, you know, your your country's going to fall behind. And um, out of the number of large number of countries in Africa, there's really not been enough attention invest on this investment in public research in agriculture. Now, again, I, you know, a couple of countries in Africa are investing. They are prioritizing this. Um, uh, again, Rwanda, Kenya, South Africa, they, and Nigeria, they have um, invested a, a pretty solid amount in public research. But the remaining countries have not prioritized agriculture and that just is going to put them decades behind because they need innovation. That's going to address their own conditions on the ground. 
And they have very challenging conditions. Obviously, we know climate change is right. going to impact tropical areas, and they need those those innovations to come from the public sector as well as the private sector. Well, yeah, I wanted so, to, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask you, how does climate change figure into the gap report? I mean, you mentioned <clears throat> greenhouse gases and livestock, which I can hear some critics, you know, uh, talking about right now because, you know, there's, I, I think, some differences between what you think about, you know, having fewer animals versus more animals. You know, that's a debate for another day. But how, how does climate change figure into all of this when you're you're presenting, you know, this, this research and and folks are reading it, I, I think, you know, this is kind of the underlying thing that, that we all should mm-hmm. be concerned about. I mean, it, it's going yeah. to affect the, the ag sector more than anything else. Yes, and, and in two ways, both the ag sector both is going to be impacted by climate change and producers as well, because we know that, what we call the tension of this in the GAP report, that um, by 2030, four billion people are going to live in increasingly hot climates. And that means producers, workers, how are they going to work in agriculture uh, in these climates? It's going to be really, really challenging for for people who labor in agriculture. And, you know, most of those regions such as, you know, South Asia, parts of sub-Saharan Africa are going to be increasingly struggling to work in these climates. And then agriculture now is becoming um, the largest, almost, to date, the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions going forward. So it has to become more sustainable. We have to reduce the impact. We have to mitigate. Right. Um, and we talk about that in the GAP report. Um, so we give examples of, you know, um, it, it, environmental issues are resonating more and more with consumers. And I think the shift is starting to happen, at least, you know, in some developed countries, there is a a demand for more sustainable products, and we discuss that in our online report. Um, and there's also a business case for climate and sustainability mm-hmm. leadership. So in, some of our companies are really trying to make serious commitments to reduce the their entire value chain, their, their whole supply chain, basically, from where they start and where they end. Um, and they're making commitments that they're measuring and they're having third party verification and you know i won't get into each one but that's i think that's one start i think there's also going to have to be a recognition on the part of governments and and unfortunately there was a lot of momentum around this and it seems to be stalling a little bit um although i'm encouraged that um many countries are continuing their paris climate accord commitments municipalities are i think that you know that hasn't completely stopped but agriculture is going to have to really step up Absolutely. Uh, because it's not just about, you know, the fuel and transportation anymore. It's it's the ag sector. So, again, we say we have to we have to be able to produce more on the same or existing or fewer acres of land with less animals. And we're going to have to do it with fewer people because people are leaving the sector. And we're going to have to do it with better management of, of those inputs like fertilizer and water. So that's what we're calling for is better productivity. Um, And then, of course, something that you guys talk a lot about is reducing the food waste. Absolutely. Absolutely. And GAIN has a great initiative on on that as well. Are are there, you know, you've traveled all over the world. Are there a couple of innovations that you feel, you know, that you're so excited about uh, in terms of helping 
uh, agricultural production in low-income countries? Or is that too much? Is that too simplistic a question? I, I'm not calling for a silver <laughs> bullet. I just, you know, yeah. I'm always excited about innovations that I may not have seen or heard about. I'm just wondering what you're seeing as you do this research yeah. and work. Yeah. Well, I well, a couple things. Okay, let me just start with a developed market. Um, so, you know, this is kind of where things are going in what I would call a developed market, like the U.S. or the EU, um, or increasingly some parts of Latin America. Um, just that, that coupling of data and, um, machine learning and artificial intelligence. It sounds kind of scary, but. <laughs> no, AI is um, so exciting. More, yeah. 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 It's, um, you know, it's, for example, um, one of our member companies is, is bought a technology company in San Francisco. And what they're doing is, um, really working on getting machinery so precise that when um, these machines are moving through crop fields, they can literally see and spray a, a, a weed, just that weed, with, you know, uh, an herbicide, so that it's not applied to the entire field. It's just the machine learns, you know, here's the crop and here's the weed, and it it will precisely, you know, apply that um, just to where it's needed. So you're talking about dramatic reductions in. Um, herbicide or other types of, you know, crop protection. So that's kind of a cool thing. And and that saves farmers money. And it also reduces environmental impact. And, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful. Um, if those kinds of technologies can be tailored down the road for smallholder farmers, um, that's fantastic. And that's, that's one trend I see in the industry is mm-hmm. a lot of the, the innovations that have, have, been working here or starting to work for us in a larger, more developed market could eventually be used and, and adapted and tailored more for a smallholder uh, market. So that's one thing. And then I would say, you know, this is, um, I wanted to bring this up from when we were in Colombia last November. It was really great. I had a chance to see, spend a day on a Silvo pastoral uh, ranch mm-hmm. outside of Cali, Colombia. And um, what I saw happening there was very exciting because it's starting to achieve scale. And this is a region of Colombia that's kind of known as their their breadbasket region, uh, the va- the Valley of Cauca, Valle de Cauca, outside of Cali. And there's a huge number of ranchers that are doing something called silvopastoral systems, which I think a lot of your readers and viewers probably know about this. Um, so what they're doing is combining uh, organic sugarcane production with cattle ranching and sheep ranching, all in kind of a, a sustainable model where they don't really even need any inputs. The system itself becomes its own inputs. So you've got um, cattle that are rotated from plot to plot. They grow uh, extremely nutritious grasses, which also some of them actually fix nitrogen back into the soil. And then the cane production is intermingled with sheep. Mm-hmm. And the entire system has become highly productive, and they measure uh, the soil organic matter. And they're actually able to sequester more more or almost equal carbon to the surrounding forest. Wow. So these systems are becoming 
more adopted and adapted to the local conditions. And more and more of these farmers and ranchers are sharing with each other how it works. So they're actually starting to achieve scale in this part of, of uh, Colombia uh, because more and more of these ranchers just want to, number one, co- cut their own costs. This is a cost-effective Absolutely. model for them. Absolutely. But they're able to produce more. So they're able to meet their Colombian demand for meat or milk with uh-huh. fewer animals, less land. They, they're not converting land that's forest. And they're actually, um, it's kind of a diversification scheme on existing land. But more and more farmers are adopting these methods. So it's really neat because they're getting more and more acreage under this kind of production system. So and we talked about that in our last gap report, the 2017 gap report. There's a story in there about Colombia that is based on this kind of a model of silvopastoral system. So I think, you know, if if you could get more and more ranchers and farmers to adapt this type of model, you're going to need fewer animals, mm-hmm. but you're mm-hmm. still going to produce, um, you know, there is a demand for, it, particularly in the developing world, there's a demand for more meat and milk and eggs and poultry. Well, and it's really and, high quality you know, while, what you're talking about, too. I mean, it's grass-fed, yeah. it's, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it works for them in their local context, and it mm-hmm. saves them money. And it's it's also actually um, more comfortable for the animals. It's it's shade. You know, they have planted trees, they've planted shrubs, and they've planted grasses. And it's a really beautiful, beautiful place. Um, you've even noted that the number of bird species has increased, right. and the water quality on the on these farms and ranches has improved. So it's really a, a great model. I would say, you know, if that type of approach could be expanded, um, we would really be able to mitigate a lot of the greenhouse gases as well as improve the soil quality and minimize uh, expansion into forests. Right. So. It's a win-win-win because farmers are making money, the environment's mm-hmm. protected, you know, all of these different things are happening and uh, the same sort of plot. It's really interesting. Uh, but mm-hmm. before you go, I want to ask you, you know, sort of go back to your congressional hunger days um, and, and talk about sort of, you know, what how you see, especially during these kind of turbulent political times, how can you see sort of citizen voters and and eaters getting involved in this, you know, and 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 making their voices heard about how they feel about you know hunger or or climate change and, and agriculture? Well, wow, good question. Um, you know, the Congress, though, I have to say, um, the there have been some really good initiatives that Congress has continued to champion. Um, for global purposes, there's something called the Global Food Security Act uh, that was just reauthorized recently. And that has been very supportive of global uh, partnerships to invest in food security and nutrition. So Congress, in many ways, has been on a bipartisan basis continuing to um, at least fund and, and be advocates mm-hmm. for some of these international programs um, currently right now, the farm bill, as many of you know, um, is kind of on hold. It wasn't passed in this, in this current Congress. I think, um, people need to, to kind of step up their support for the conservation programs mm-hmm. in the farm bill. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, there's some differences between the house and the Senate version and also the food stamp, um, program or SNAP. Um, you know, be advocates, educate yourselves, 
there's some really great resources out there about um, both the nutrition and the conservation aspects for the in the farm bill and um, groups like the Food Research Action Center have information on the nutrition aspects of the farm bill. Great group, yeah. And um, so, yeah, and just weigh in with your member of Congress if you mm-hmm. can, you know. Um, and then there's really great initiatives going on. Obviously, you had Robert Egger speak on one of your um, right. podcasts, who's one of my heroes, and he's a good friend. And um, there's so much innovation going on at the local level. So get involved with um, groups if you can get involved in food banks or in, um, you know, places like DC Central Kitchen or LA Kitchen, you know, local groups like that, mm-hmm. um, that that you know, where you can get to know the issues yourself on the ground and be part of a, a group of people that are seeking solutions and and volunteering together to understand what's going on. But yeah, talk to your members of Congress. They they want to hear from you and they will listen. <laughs> Hopefully, that's great advice. I, I really, uh, you know, am excited to have you on the podcast today, Margaret. You're such a pleasure, and I learned so much. So thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for giving us the opportunity to share a little bit. And I hope that at some point we get to catch up together, Danielle. I know you, you're traveling a lot, and I am too, but um, it was really great to spend a little time together and to learn more about what each of our our different efforts are doing. And we really need to... Um, People, we just need to know more about what each of us is doing instead of having preconceived ideas about what's going on and and um, get to know people on a personal level. No, it makes such a difference. I mean, I, I, you know, I I had such a great time with you and I learned so much then. And so I I love that we've continued uh, to have this relationship and ongoing sort of dialogue. Well, thanks for the call and uh, good luck with your podcasts. Uh, They're fantastic. I love listening. Thanks so much. That means the world to me. All right. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com. Email me at danielle at foodtank.com. And follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. <laughs>